Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Stephen Barstow, author of Around the World in 80 Plants. Today we talk about his incredibly diverse garden in Norway, where he grows over 2,000 edible plants in a rather small space. We begin with his background and how he came to have an interest in edibles from his beginning as a foraging vegetarian through to his collecting and eating a variety of plants from wherever he traveled. He shares with us his love of edible ornamentals, or what Stephen calls edimentals, and he also recommends some of these edimentals to start with when first beginning to introduce more of these species to your garden. One of my favorites, not mentioned in this interview, are nasturtiums. Let's hear from Stephen, and then I'll join you afterwards with some thoughts and updates. Could you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to do what you're doing, and then we'll discuss your book, Around the World in 80 Plants. Right. Um, well, I actually moved for, from the UK to Norway in 1981, which is a hell of a long time ago, 34 years. And I moved to Norway basically to get a job. I am trained as an oceanographer and work with uh, ocean waves. And at that time, uh, Maggie Thatcher was closing all the research institutes in the UK and... Uh, I, just to get a get a job, I had to, had to move abroad. Well, I could have got a, got a job, but uh, it was within uh, researching dumping of nuclear waste in the deep ocean, and it wasn't really my kind of thing. As I, at that time, I was uh, going out on marches against nuclear power stations, so uh, <laughs> it didn't really uh, suit me. But um, so I moved to Norway in '81, and uh, I was a vegetarian. And at that time. There actually were very few vegetables available in supermarkets in Norway. Um, the local supermarket had four or five different vegetables. It was almost as though this was a country where vegetables were illegal. I kind of joke about it, but it was almost like that. And historically, Norwegians haven't had a very strong tradition of uh, of using uh, greens at all. So, actually, to survive as a vegetarian, I had to start start growing food. And we rented a, a flat with actually a very very large piece of land that we were able to use. We only stayed there for a couple of years when I moved to uh, where I'm living today. And uh, very early on. I came in contact with a, a group called the, the Norwegian Useful Plant Society. And this is a, a pretty unique society globally, actually. I haven't come across another country that has a, a society which is, which is devoted to foraging. And this is a very old society here in Norway. It goes back over 100 years. And uh, it's devoted to you know, foraging uh, fungi, mushrooms in the, uh, in the autumn, and, uh, and berries, of course, and, but also uh, wild edible greens in the springtime. So there was this kind of strange contrast. There were no vegetables in the in the supermarket, but uh, there was this group of uh, well, were youngsters at the time going out on on spring forages, and and uh, I, I soon learned there was uh, something like 60 different uh, edible vegetables, edible plants in the area around my house, and got really interested in that. Um, and yeah, and uh, I kind of uh, travelled quite a lot with my my work as an oceanographer. We had a kind of a dreamlike project in the South Pacific, actually. In um, I was working uh, with uh, ocean wave energy, and we were trying to work out how much energy there was in the in the oceans around the, the South Pacific Islands, because uh, this was an area where they use diesel for fuel, and uh, renewables was uh, something 
that would uh, help out in that situation, which entailed I had to go down there to do uh, training for uh, some of the islanders in the area. And uh, on these trips around the world, I, I kind of I started uh, stopping off in, in North America and New Zealand and various places like this and uh, buying up books about uh, local foraging. Because uh, you know, I, I saw that there were there were some really good wild plants that I would never have heard of locally if I hadn't got into local foraging. And it occurred to me that there were you know other parts of the world there would be, be some other in, uh, very interesting wild edibles. So I started uh, building up a kind of a library of um, edible plants. Then I remember one particular time I was in uh, Seattle in the States, and I saw I found this book in, the, in 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 a bookstore there called The Edible Plants of the World. Stuart Avant's Edible Edible Plants of the World. It was a book that was put together in about 1920, and it has something like 3,000 wild species which are edible. And I thought, wow, this is this is really interesting. No, no pictures, just a load of information about each, each of the plants. And yeah, I remember going through this and saying, well, that'd be nice to nice to try. And and then I noticed some of the plants that were mentioned in there were actually ornamentals in our gardens. Plants like hostas and uh, daylilies and uh, and such like. So I started looking around in gardens and botanical gardens and seeing in a, a slightly new light these uh, ornamental plants, which uh, a few years ago I, I dubbed edimentals, edible ornamentals, which is also the, the name of my website, ed- edimentals.com, that uh, these, uh, these plants were particularly useful because they, they double up as uh, edibles and ornamentals. So you can forget having an ornamental garden, you know, can just uh, just grow nice plants which are also good to eat and many of these you can you know can basically cut right down to the you can pick the young shoots in the springtime and then uh, still they will flower later in the season so you can have uh, have both so that was really the early years were you foraging and kind of eating your way around the world as you would travel learning about these different edible plants to a certain extent, obviously, I didn't have that much time when I was when I was traveling, but I, I certainly went out on on, on field trips and uh, started to learn the plants. I remember in uh, there was one particular plant in in New Zealand that I was uh, very inquisitive to to learn more about. It's actually a a weed globally. It's a south thistle, Soncus. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a, a weed you you basically find in uh, disturbed ground uh, globally. It's actually an annual. But uh, the Maori of uh, New Zealand, they were, um, so they had this uh, perennial south thistle, and uh, when the Europeans came, there was this annual south thistle, which I think is familiar to most people, which uh, started appearing in their, their vegetable gardens. And uh, they started uh, using that one instead of the perennial variant. And it would kind of grow on the edges of their beds. And uh, I read in this uh, foraging book uh, from New Zealand that uh, the Maoris even, uh, that they they cultivated it, it said, and uh, and that they this uh, South Thistle was also sold on, on markets, in Maori markets in Auckland and various other cities in, in New Zealand. So when I was back in New Zealand, uh, I decided to um, visit one of these Maori markets, and, uh, and right enough, about a third of the stalls on this uh, market, they were selling uh, this, what we would think of as a, as a weed. And it uh, turns out that uh, the Maori use, use a lot of this, uh, this south thistle as a vegetable. It's very, very popular. And it turns out that the Maori have a very low incidence of uh, stomach cancers and uh, other 
similar cancers and uh, uh, one of the theories is actually that uh, one of the reasons for this is, is, is the large uh, consumption of this, uh, this weed whereas the European people they, they don't really use this, uh, this plant uh, to any, any, any degree. So uh, yeah, I remember when I when I was in New Zealand, you know, I, of course I had to had, I went to this market and I bought some and I had a kind of uh, accommodation with cooking facilities and, uh, and I cooked it up and wow, this is really quite good. So today, actually one of the most uh, one of the vegetables I use most in my garden is actually this common sow thistle, which uh, is a weed on my you know, vegetable and perennial beds in the garden. So. Uh, very easy. It just uh, you don't do anything. It just keeps on coming. But uh, also, uh, um, I, I grow various uh, perennial south thistles because uh, perennials is well. Most wild edibles are actually perennial, and many of the uh, our common conventional food crops are, were originally perennial plants, like all the cabbage family. Uh, derived from uh, perennial wild plants. I talk quite a lot about that in the book. There's a whole section about perennial kales and uh, cabbages. You know, 100, 150 years ago, there were uh, perennial kales and cabbages were quite commonly cultivated, and but it really didn't fit into the uh, our desire to to dig the ground uh, to to dig and plough every every springtime. And uh, but luckily, these perennial kales survived in uh, home gardens. Uh, across Europe and North America and in some other parts of the world. So luckily, thanks to the fact that home gardeners saw the, the use of these plants, uh, we have something like, uh, I don't know, eight or nine different uh, old perennial kales which survive today. And, and thanks to increased interest now in permaculture and uh, perennial vegetables and genetic resources, then uh, I think most of these uh, old perennial kales are now safe. Unlike conventional cabbages and kales etc these perennial kales are propagated by by cuttings so they're very easy to just pass over to your neighbor you don't need any uh, big uh, seed companies as a source of seed when making the selections that you did for your book these 80 plants you kind of take us on a tour of every continent were there particular criteria you had in selecting the plants that you wanted to share well, first of all, the, um, they're, they're all plants that I've, uh, I've, I've grown myself in my garden, well, quite near the Arctic Circle in Norway, living at about 64 degrees north. So these were all plants that I was familiar with and had grown for a number of years that uh, a, a lot of the plants have uh, an interesting uh, ethnobotanic uh, story behind them. Yield was one thing. Uh, many of the plants that I talk about are plants which grow very well in, uh, in, in shady conditions, places where you wouldn't uh, consider to have uh, conventional vegetables. So they fit very well into this new wave of forest garden, gardening, which uh, is, is, is coming at us. I mean, I gardened uh, here in, in Norway more or less on my own for 25 years. I didn't know any other gardeners. And this is uh, before there was, you know, the internet really took off. And it's really only the last five years that I've had a lot of contact with, with other gardeners through, through the internet, through Facebook and through my website, etc. And that's been really inspiring because there's suddenly this uh, this wave over the last four or five years here in Norway that, uh, and I think uh, more or less globally, that uh, you know youngsters are really getting interested in uh, wanting to learn about uh, growing their own and being self-sufficient again and uh, and stuff. And it's uh, and permaculture is uh, you know very very important in that respect. And so about five years ago, started, youngsters started uh, turning up in my garden. I heard rumors of this large collection of edible plants that I have and started coming into my garden and saying, you've got a forest garden. 
have I? You know, I said, of course, I, of course, I had a forest garden when I started thinking about it because uh, I have a my, my garden is quite a complicated. Uh, there are lots of niches in the garden, ecological niches. You know, there are shady places, there are open places, there are windy places, and I always, uh, when I planted something, I, I, I planted according to where those plants were growing nature. So I observed nature and and moved those uh, and, and and planted according to that. So yeah, plants that needed shady conditions they were planted under the um, together with trees and bushes so yeah of course i had a, a forest garden i just uh, didn't actually well I, you know I, I i had heard of the concept of forest gardening but it didn't really totally sink in i must admit i was kind of doing my own, my own thing for many years i had read the book uh, by robert hart years ago on forest gardening one of the pioneers yeah so that's where we are today really you say about five years ago, people were showing up in your garden. Had you had much exposure to the permaculture community before that? Not really, no. Um, I mean, I'd heard of permaculture and uh, um, I'd found it somewhat, I suppose, a bit, bit confusing as to what exactly it was. I mean, I've been part of the organic movement, you know, right from, right from the word go. Uh, actually, even before I moved to Norway, I was involved in the uh, UK organic movement what was called the Henry Doubleday Research Association at that time, and you know, learned a lot about uh, seed saving and uh, the importance of preserving uh, old varieties, genetic resources, and that kind of stuff. So as well, and uh, my gar- I, I opened my garden to the public and had regular open days from about 89 onwards. So well, I always grew things organically, but the interest in, in, in perennials, it uh, just gradually dawned on me that uh, actually the plants which were giving the highest yields in my, in, in, in my conditions, they were actually perennials, okay? These were plants that were mainly, uh, were mainly harvesting in the springtime, like uh, most of the wild, wild edibles. But uh, undoubtedly, it's the perennials that give the highest yields in my garden. And I started getting a permaculture magazine with the publishers who are permanent uh, publications and I discovered a number of very interesting uh, things which uh, interesting plants which weren't very well known as edibles around the world and one of them was a plant that that we call the Caucasian spinach, Hablitzia tamnoides. It's a climbing plant that can grow to about three to four meters in, in, in during the summer months and uh, it grows in woodland in the in the caucasus in the wild and that plant came to the uh, to scandinavia as an ornamental in around about 1870 and it became quite popular over here a bit popular it was also grown to a small in a small scale in the u.s and uh, in england but never became uh, really popular but in in particularly in uh, sweden finland and, and norway it was discovered that it was actually the young shoots in the springtime were actually quite tasty. It's a plant which is related to plants like fat hen, or what's it called, ladies thumb, I think it's called over there, isn't it? No, not ladies thumb. Um, different different cultures, different names, but um, it's in the Kenopodium family. So it's really quite closely related to those. And yeah, it was discovered quite early on that uh, it was very good to eat, but it kind of gradually, the interest in it as an ornamental, it kind of faded away, but a few people kept kept growing it as an edible. And when I discovered this about uh, you know, 15 years ago or so, uh, I started uh, growing it and uh, I found that it was getting incredible yields very early in the spring. So my oldest pl- single plant, it has something like 250 shoots in the springtime from the, from the one rootstock. And uh, these uh, shoots uh, are harvested about 10 centimeters long. And you can, you can cut them all back and it comes with a new 
outburst of, of growth. Really uh, high yielding, very tasty. It can be used as a salad plant and it can also be used uh, as a kind of spinach. And I was so excited about this plant, I wanted to kind of uh, spread the word. So I, con- I contacted Permaculture Magazine in the UK and asked them if they'd be interested in a, an article, and they were. I wrote the article and I followed that up with uh, another article about hostas, which is a very, very common ornamental plant, but little known in the West as, a, as an edible very important in the Far East, in particularly in Japan and Korea as an edible plant. It's cultivated and it's also collected from the wild, foraged from the wild. Really productive plant. It grows in all the, in, in very shady conditions. Perfect for the for the forest garden type environment. But really, really strange that it's never really despite all the books on uh, oriental vegetables, etc., it doesn't seem to really have been uh, picked up on before. So basically on the back of those those two Plant profiles. No, quite. You know, I, I like to go into depth on uh, on the plants and how they. Well, and this is this is how the whole book is structured. It's a an ethnobotanical travel log around the world. So we follow the plants and the stories behind the plants, and uh, I give experience about how those plants are. Uh, cultivated, how they're used in the kitchen. It's, uh, it's, it, I mean, it's not, a, it's not a cookbook, but I include a few uh, recipes sprinkled through to kind of inspire others. So it, it's really a book that uh, will hopefully inspire others to, to look at some of these perennials and, and try them for themselves. And it's by no means certain that the 80 that I've chosen are the best for other people. It's supposed to inspire people to, to look at other perennials around the world. There are certainly hundreds still to be discovered which uh, are out there. I keep on, I'm still discovering uh, interesting uh, perennials in my garden. And how many perennials do you currently have in your garden? Too many probably. (laughs) I kind of joke that I'm I'm actually a sick man. I've got uh, collector mania. You know, my dad, he collected uh, stamps. I had to find something to collect and it turned out uh, to be edible plants. So I have... I really don't know how many how many they are, but probably have in the region of 2,000 different uh, edible plants from around the world, which is uh, which is quite uh, interesting because I can one day I can go out and forage in Japan, the next day I can forage in North America, I can forage uh, in Norway, but I've I've got far too much food, particularly in the springtime, so I don't manage to by no means eat everything every springtime, and uh, some things I still haven't got around to eating. And, and it's, I, I don't have many of each variety, but I'm trying, I'm trying very hard to you know, concentrate on the ones which are really, really are, you know, these 80 and a few, few others. But it's very difficult to, to throw plants away, I find. <laughs> How much space do you have devoted to your garden to grow these plants in? Oh, let's say it's, um, it's the whole garden is something like 50 meters long by about uh, 30 meters wide. And I cultivate probably up about two thirds of that. So it's about a thousand square meters. That's really not a lot of space for how much you ha- you're growing. No, it's not. As I say, I don't have, I don't have that many of each, uh, each variety. Um, I'm lucky that I've got pretty fertile soil. I'm living right next to the coast, so I, I've only used seaweed as a fertilizer for the last, getting on for 25, 30 years. So I just, uh, so it's all kind of locally sourced, and uh, I rarely have any other input than the seaweed in the garden. I don't handle metric well being an American. <laughs> I just converted that, and that's only about 10,000 square feet then that you're cultivating, a little under a quarter of an acre. 
That's pretty incredible. It's quite incredible. The, uh, the, I mean, I, I, I could get more yield out of it if I really concentrated on the plants, which were really giving the, the highest yield. But I'm, you know, 100% self-sufficient, at least in leafy greens. I mean, uh, potatoes, that, that, that kind of thing. But I don't grow grains and uh, that kind of thing, only, only on a very small scale. So I experimented a bit with perennial grains and things, but not on a, on a big scale. I don't have... I don't have space for that. So the book is basically about leafy greens. I decided to limit it to that. Um, I don't concentrate on uh, on root crops, but I, I mention it where the leafy green may be, can also be used as a root vegetable. In your garden, do you include any animals of any kind? No, I don't. No. So it's kind of uh, I grow in a it's kind of vegan I suppose because it's uh, I don't use any animal manure I don't uh, apart from my own <laughs> whatever I produce myself um, I don't use I don't import any uh, horse manure or whatever. And you say that you and your wife were vegetarians when you made the move. Are you still vegetarian? Almost. I, I do have uh, some wild fish occasionally, but otherwise I'm vegetarian. Yeah, lacto. Yeah. I think it was Steve Solomon, the author of um, Growing When It Counts. I don't remember if that's the full title of the book. He re- referred to himself as a vegetable-tarian because he ate primarily the vegetables that grew from his garden. And it sounds like you're very sufficient from your own garden, your own needs in that way. I mean, there are all sorts of te- techniques. You know, for, you know, for in, in the winter, I've got a, a house with a, a cold uh, basement where I store a lot of things. I sprout a lot of things in the winter, usually home-saved seed. The cellar itself, I, I actually move things like kales, perennial kales, Swiss chard, these kind of things, down into the basement and plant them in earth. And even though the temperature is only a few degrees, probably currently about five degrees, new sprouts come, and which so I can actually harvest greens from the uh, from the cellar during the winter. And there are actually some some plants that I can actually harvest outside, like uh, this Caucasian spinach for the Hablitsia, because that actually sends, it's incredibly early, it actually sends up young shoots in the, in the autumn. And those young shoots, they stand the whole winter, unaffected by temperatures down to you know, minus 20, in Finland anywhere they can stand minus 30 centigrade. Quite an incredible plant. I made a salad with some, some shoots just the other day, actually. <laughs> And some onions, particularly uh, the North American uh, nodding onion, Allium cernium, which I also call Chicago onion in the book because uh, the name Chicago actually means or is believed to to mean onion in Native American language. And that was one of the first uh, perennial onions that I grew that is grown here as an ornamental. But it's, it's really productive. It's beautiful. It's tasty grows very quickly that's one that i would i would definitely have in 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 my garden if i started off again and that's also in the book i tell a story about the book about about the the plant and chicago and uh, you know north america's most widespread onion and it's a what they call an edimental an edible ornamental fantastic plant mentioning that this would be one of the plants that you would start off with if you were starting off again, what are some other kind of beginner plants that you would recommend people investigate in this edimental vein? Well, um, I've already mentioned one. That's uh, the Hablitsia. It depends what kind of climate you've got, ultimately. Obviously, you've got the people listening in here uh, uh, living all over over the world. 
so it's not necessary that the, the ones which grow for me best uh, are going to grow well there. But I know that Hablitzia is grown in uh, colder part, all the colder parts of North America, and it's grown right down into France and Europe and, and England. So that's one. Hostas, I would definitely have. I would have um, a plant. Uh, well, my, my most productive perennial vegetable is a plant which we call Udo, which comes from uh, Japan. It was under the Latin name of Aurelia cordata, plant in the ginseng family. And uh, it's herbaceous. In other words, it grow, it dies right back to the ground every, every autumn. It comes with new shoots. But it grows to three to four meters in, in my almost Arctic climate within the end of June. You know, incredible growth rate. And it's, uh, my largest plant has uh, something like 30 shoots, which I harvest about one meter high. And in Japan, it's uh, again both cultivated and also wild foraged. And they have a really uh, one of the most unusual forms of gardening I've ever come across. That uh, Tokyo is built on, and parts of Tokyo anyway, built on a particular type of soil, which they can easily dig in. And they've made these big caverns under Tokyo where they move the roots of uh, Udo uh, down and, and they're sprouted. So the, the shoots from the Udo roots underground in the, in the complete darkness, they harvest them down there and then they sell, sell those uh, shoots as a, a delic- delicacy on markets around. But that plant has uh, so many different uses. The young shoots are used. The, um, the young flower, what we could think of as broccolis, just before the flowers come out are used widely in Japan as in uh, tempura, if you know what tempura is. And yeah, it's a, a, a plant that uh, both bees and butterflies and you know, nature likes, birds like the little berries that come later on. Fantastic plant. And uh, when, I, when, when people challenge me and say that, well, you, the reason we don't grow perennials is that they don't yield well, I just show them a photograph of uh, my largest vegetable with towering over, over over me so there that, that that is definitely one i would uh, i would suggest uh, looking at uh, i know it's cultivated for oriental markets in uh, in north america and um, they started recently in the uk cultivating it and selling on markets in london so it's uh, obviously fairly well adapted to quite a wide range of climates yeah i could go on and on there are there are so many plants as i say hosta hablitzia Perennial kales, of course, if you've got the climate, uh, perennial kales are, are not that hardy, but if you've got the climate for them, well, even if you don't have the climate, you can actually take cuttings of perennial kales in the autumn and overwinter them inside, and then you've already got a, a head start in the springtime. With the hostas, for somebody who's listening to this and looking outside and thinking about the hostas that are growing in their own yard, what parts of that plant are edible? Well, uh, the main part which is used are the uh, the young shoots in the springtime. You can imagine uh, just before the leaves start folding out, I actually call call them hostons. I don't know if you you know these chicory shikons which are, are sold on supermarket, but uh, they're sprouted in the wintertime and sold over here anyway. Uh, so I call them hostons in parallel with shikons. And 
So they're, they're basically harvested and they can be used uh, as a kind of a, a spinach. Um, I've, I've made a, uh, I remember, uh, first actually it was the, the North American Hosta Society. This is the thing that really got me to, I, I was, I'm, I'm very careful with, uh, you know, I, I don't try things until I'm absolutely sure, particularly when I, I think I'm the only person in the world that's ever ever tried this vegetable but uh, I read on the, on, on the net um, an article about uh, the North American Hosta Society had an annual meeting and one of the members was uh, was I think from Japan and he made a whole range of hosta dishes for this uh, meeting and they were, they were kind of raving about it and this is really good and that really encouraged me to try it and one of the dishes they made was um, something called uh, Hosta Capita which was based on the Greek spinach pie which is called spanakopita okay and it's basically if you just just take a, a greek spinach pie recipe and use hosta leaves instead then you've got a delicious a delicious uh, vegetable pie but uh, not only that uh, i've discovered that the um, well there are other species of hosta which are also uh, blanched they're grown in in dark greenhouses for markets in tokyo which they actually call, uh, literally translated from the Japanese, hosta icicles, because they look, they're white, they're long and white. Also, the flower shoots are very crispy and, and, and tasty, and the flowers themselves can be used in salads in the, in the summer. Such an incredible variety from a plant that until I read your book and talked to you today, I didn't even know was edible. Yeah, most people are surprised, you know. I have people coming around my garden, they see I'm growing hostas, and they say, you don't eat that, do you? You know, and they're kind of in disbelief. But uh, yeah, indeed, and it's uh, not not at all bitter, a good taste. Yeah, try it. I mean, this, there, there are no known poisonous substances in any of the hostas, so uh, you can basically use any. Have you ever gotten a little bit of a stomach upset from trying some of your new plants as you bring them into your garden and into your diet? No, I can honestly say that I've never, apart from one particular occasion, which was actually a wild forage plant, and that was ostrich fern, fiddleheads. And uh, we had uh, an experience where we uh, we harvested from the wild, and uh, I told uh, I, I was actually I actually had a course over here where I uh, we went out foraging along a, a river, and we uh, came back home. I told everybody that that you're supposed to cook them for you know 10, 15 minutes just to be be sure, because some of the places that these uh, ferns are growing can be um, flooded during the winter, and there can be some nasty things coming with the with the floodwaters. It's difficult to, to clean the uh, fiddleheads 100%. And I know there have been similar episodes in the, in the U.S. of people getting uh, getting sick from eating fiddleheads which haven't been cooked. So that was the only occasion. I told everybody to, to cook for 10 minutes, but I came back too late and it already, the dinner already been made and the person who had eaten it hadn't heard this and it had only been cooked uh, briefly. Um, I thought, well, this has never occurred in Norway before that anybody's been sick. It's probably all right, but uh, that was a mistake. That's still pretty incredible for everything that you've sampled, everything you've brought into your garden, and all these things that are a regular part of your diet to have had but just one incident. Yeah, but it's all about diversity. You know, if you often the problem is you eat too much of one thing. You know, I never eat too much of one thing because I'm, I'm I'm always using you know at least, uh, well, often anyway, uh, 10, 10, 20, 30 different vegetables in, the, in a dish. And I think this uh, diversity and uh, seasonality of food is very much uh, underestimated in, in our diets. And it's more fun as well, you know? Well, I look at how colorful the plate is on the cover of your book with the yellows and 
reds and blues and purples and all these things that on a normal American plate you very rarely see unless it's something that's been colored like that. The cover of the book is a is a picture from my uh, from my house um, of a one of these uh, diversity salads that I, I've become known for um, because well a few years ago I you know having so many edibles in my garden we had an open day and I decided to oh, we'd make a salad with as many different uh, species of plant as possible. The first time I did this, we came up, uh, it was about 340 different species, and the second time it was 538, which is still the world record. I don't think anybody's uh, been mad enough to try. So that gave me the the name Extreme Salad Man or the Mad Salad Man. So I kind of regularly over, over recent years have, have made these made these salads, often with 100 species. I'm not going to make one with 538 again because that uh, took about uh, 20 hours to put together and document, etc. But um, the uh, you know every every year I, I usually make a, have a special occasion where we make uh, a, a really diverse salad, so that every mouthful you you you, you eat it you you get a a new taste. It's, and they're beautiful, as you say, uh, decorated with flowers and uh, other colorful. Like on, on the cover, you can uh, there's these little blue chunks. That's actually a blue potato, blue Congo potato. So diversity is my second name, I suppose. And I appreciate the time that we've spent together today walking through your background and the book and this diversity of foods that we can integrate and even grow in such a small space. Before we draw the interview to a close, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Well, um, what I would say really is, uh, is hopefully, uh, if you if you do uh, read my book, you know, around the world in eighty plants, uh, that uh, would certainly have succeeded if uh, it has inspired some of you folks to uh, you know, observe nature yourselves and uh, and start uh, exploring, you know, the incredible number of uh, wild edibles out there. As I said, said earlier, there is absolutely certain there are there are many still to be discovered. Um, there are many of these wild edibles which have been domesticated on a small scale around the world. Um, absolutely certain there are there are hundreds of others in the Japan Korea area in the Mediterranean countries. They've discovered 3,000 different uh, edible plants just over the last 15 years because researchers started getting money to explore what people were eating after the the Mediterranean diet was uh, the fact that uh, people living in uh, in mountain areas in, in, in the Mediterranean areas had a very low uh, incidence of heart and uh, and lung disease and uh, well a lot a lot of the perennials which we are that I'm I'm growing and most other people are growing are actually little improved from the wild species so I encourage very much people to join groups like uh, there's a Facebook group uh, plant breeding for permaculture because I think even as amateurs we can actually achieve a lot if we work together. For example, there's a lot of work going on at the moment within trying to breed better perennial kales by crossing perennial kales with some of the more colorful uh, uh, modern kales, for example, hoping that the perenniality will be uh, maintained. So this this whole thing of uh, kind of uh, open source breeding of uh, of perennials is something I think we can we can actually do com- uh, communally thanks to the uh, you know thanks to the internet and uh, we can have fun at the same time. So uh, yeah, that would be basically what I would hope. <laughs> or it's something that I haven't really had uh, enough space or, or time myself to, 
to work too much on. I've got a number of projects on the go, but uh, where I'm trying to trying to breed uh, new things. Well, it's encouraging to walk through your book and read about all of the different plants and also to connect with the broader communities that are involved in this. As you say, there are a lot of, of younger folks coming into this who are very interested and engaged, and I hope that we can together continue to improve on these plants and enjoy such a diversity in our diet and in our world. So thank you for being a part of this movement. Well, thank you too. That's been uh, really interesting. Yeah. It's been a long journey, but uh, a very interesting and, and fun journey. And uh, yeah, I'm not finished yet. Will you add another thousand plants or more to your garden? Well, I doubt, I doubt that, but uh, as I say, I'm trying to try to decrease rather than increase, but certainly there are a lot of new things. I mean, I've, uh, I'm still sowing something like 300 different uh, perennials every year, so <laughs> I'm not finished quite. No. Well, certainly I'll stay in touch and we'll find out more about where your garden grows in the future. Yeah, cheers. Yeah. Anybody in Norway, please, uh, please pop in. Even if they're just there to visit? Yeah, sure. Yeah. As long as I'm home and, and got time. And, uh, and uh, actually, I'm uh, traveling quite a lot uh, you know, on, on the back of the book. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to be in uh, New Zealand in, in March when I think this is broadcasting from mid-March. And then uh, I'm going to be actually coming over to the U.S. In, uh, to Oregon in uh, September, late, uh, late August, uh, September. So, uh, and hopefully also be at the, uh, the uh, International Permaculture Conference in the uh, U.K. In, uh, also in September. Thank you very much for joining me. Okay. Yep. Cheers. Yep. And that was Stephen Barstow, author of Around the World in 80 Plants. You can find out more about his work at edimentals.com. His book is available in North America from Chelsea Green Publishing or in the UK and Europe from Permanent Publications. You'll find links to all of those in the show notes. What's incredible to me is that Stephen is growing so many different varieties on such a small amount of space which echoes what I learned from my road trip to Virginia, and especially from Holly Brown, that we really can grow a lot of food in not a lot of land area. More so, what impressed me about Stephen's work is that he's doing it in such a northerly climate, less than a quarter of an acre or a tenth of a hectare with over 2,000 different plants at 64 degrees north latitude. I knew that was fairly far up relative to where I am in Pennsylvania, but didn't have a real understanding until I compared it to other cities and saw that this is the same latitude as Fairbanks, Alaska. I took this a step further and checked the Köppen-Geiger climate classification map and confirmed that where Stephen is corresponds with other northerly latitudes. Yet he's growing all these plants. It's just amazing. If you're interested in Stephen and his work, I am including a copy of this book, which I received from Chelsea Green, in the Traveling Permaculture Library Project. If you haven't joined that cycle of giving yet, email your name and address to Matt Winters, who is the new librarian for the project. You can reach him at librarian at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Regardless of where you live, you can grow some of your own food. You can use permaculture to design for your space and climate and take steps towards self-sufficiency that creates a better world, whatever that may mean to you. You can move a few dollars from one system and into the systems that you want to intentionally support. If at any point along the way I can help you, get in touch. Call 717-827-6266 or email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. I'm also continuing to look for opportunities to take the show on the road and to record more live in-person interviews and roundtables. You can use that phone number or email address to get in touch 
if you would like to host or have someone in mind that I should reach out to. Finally, a few announcements before drawing this episode to a close. This show, as mentioned in the introduction, is completely listener-supported, so I need your help to keep the show on the air. The best way to do that right now is through recurring contributions with Patreon. You can find out more about that, as well as how far I am along in reaching some of my goals at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. If you are not in a place to give, that's fine. I'll keep on keeping on as long as I can, and you can always lend a hand with sharing this podcast with others by leaving a review on iTunes, your favorite podcast site. Share links with your friends. Reply to tweets or retweet anything that I post to Twitter, where I'm at permaculturecst, or join in the conversations on Facebook, facebook.com slash thepermaculturepodcast. From here... I have a class announcement for my friends and colleagues, Wilson Alvarez and Ben Weiss. They're running a permaculture design course in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, beginning on April 25, 2015, and running on weekends through October. Search for Downtown Harrisburg Permaculture Course on Facebook to find the events page and more information, or follow the link in the show notes. Coming up for the podcast, I have interviews with Wildman Steve Brill on foraging, Peter Michael Bauer on rewilding, and I'll be sitting down with Jen Mendez of permikids.com to record a two-part interview. I'll interview her for the first half, which will appear on this show, and then she's going to interview me for the second half that will appear on her podcast. I think that's going to be a fun time. And if you listen to the recent re-release of The Gift with Matt Winters with a new introduction and ending, I'm looking to go back through the archives and do more of those best-of episodes to share some of the more popular guests in new ways. There's five years of material sitting there, and I know that some of it gets lost if you just want to go looking for it. But there are some things that I think that all of us should listen to at least once or time and again. But that covers everything for now. Until the next time, spend each day creating a better world, the world you want to live in, by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.